Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, David Capello, author of The People's Grocer, New Orleans and the Making of the Modern Retail World, John Schwegman. Welcome to Writers Forum, David. Oh, thank you very much, Sherry. You're, um, by trade, you're a market analyst, a business analyst. What does that mean? Well, I did that for about 25 years. I worked out of New York City and Washington, D.C. That involves um, writing uh, books, basically, 200, 300-page books. I saw you did one on marketing coffee. <laughs> yes, coffee, every cereal, uh, Private credit cards. Shampoo. Yeah, private credit cards. And I, the last one I did was on the smart grid, actually. Well, what, what made you come up? First of all, welcome to New Orleans. You've been here a while. Yes, I've been here for over 20 years at this point. And what got you interested in writing about Schwegman, John Schwegman? Well, I was interested in the Schwegman chain when I first came here because it was so unique. It was such a unique retail phenomenon. Because it was so culturally based, so culturally rooted. And, of course, New Orleans is known for its culture. And the authenticity of it was pretty overwhelming. And it just stuck with me. And I filed it away thinking, well, maybe I'll write a book about it someday. Well, we're taping this on the 14th which is actually would have been Schwegman's birthday, and you had a celebration over the weekend. Yes, it was great. We had three pop-up events. Um, it wasn't the 14th because it had to be coincide with Saturday, uh, Saturday. But, yes, we did it in the Bywater at three locations, three, two, two new businesses and one old business. And it was where one of his first grow the family grocery was. Yes, it, the first one was at the Bywater Bakery, which is um, one block away from his grandparents' old urban homestead back in the days when there really were urban homesteads. <laughs> and you had some, some grocery bags. Before we get into all that, okay. Um, when you describe the Schwegmans and their old homestead and so on, where his grandfather had started a store, but you you tell us how different groceries were more than 100 years ago. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, that was back in the days of the, uh, after the war between the states or the Civil War, whatever you want to call it, um, there was the giant rush of immigration, European immigration into the United States, and coinciding that with that were, was a urban phenomena of old corner stores, old corner grocery stores. We had them everywhere around New Orleans. Yes, and New Orleans was one of the most... Most of them are houses now, but... <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, they they pretty much went were phased out after the supermarket came, um, became so prominent after the World War II. But the Schwegman family, before John Schwegman came along, it was typical grocery. One customer came in at a time. You got waited on. You, mm. They'd fill your order. Yes, yes. It was a very long process. It was called full service in retail parlance, where 
every single customer was waited on individually. And usually there was only one person to wait on them. So it just, and everybody had to walk to the store. And so they became these social centers just because people had to wait so long to fulfill their, but it was, it was great. Um, while it lasted, the, there was built in inefficiencies in pricing and delivery and all these sort of things. Um, that eventually left them vulnerable when the much more efficient supermarket came along. Now, my grandfather, by the way, uh, not from here, but he had a, a, a walk-in grocery like that, Dixie Cash Market. Oh, I remember uh, my uncles worked there um, when I was a kid. Anyway, <clears throat> um, that changed. Yes, yes, it did. Uh, yeah, those, the stores really knit the city together. And they were especially strong in New Orleans. Well, we had so many immigrants. That was one of the reasons mm -hmm. for the change. Um, also, technology changed. Um, so that's where we got the idea of having bigger stores. But now the original Schwegman Brothers giant supermarket wasn't okay, didn't come along till 1946. John Schwegman had a few other jobs before that. Yes, he did. He did. He... He was actually a high school dropout, and even earlier, he was a middle school dropout. He dropped dropped out in eighth grade. For but you New Orleanians, where where you want to know where someone went to school, Holy Cross. <laughs> yes, Holy Cross <laughs> and Holy Trinity before that. And he went to your first and second grade at a neighborhood school, a private school, which was actually just a shotgun apartment of Miss Elise Liveday. And great stories. His whole education was just very colorful it, back in the old days, Catholic schools and, you know, the nuns as the teachers and the Father Prim was patrolling the halls, chomping on a sh cigar and well, things like that. Well, many, many New Orleanians, in fact, <sighs> the vast majority of New Orleanians of a certain age, <sighs> that was their life too, uh, very much like John Schwegman's. Anyway, he comes along. And the first one um, was on St. Claude and Elysian Fields. And it was much, much bigger than these corner stores. What, 40,000 feet? Um, well, yes, it was that much in total, but that included the parking lot. The actual size of the store was 16,000 square feet, which but, was on the, on the large side for supermarkets of the time, actually. 46. But And he had many other departments. He had groceries, and he had meat, but there were several other departments that most groceries didn't have. Yes. he, he From the beginning, he tried to incorporate drug items and um, general merchant, what they call general merchandise, which is basically what you find in a discount store. Um, you know, certain types of clothing, um, I don't know, you know. Sporting every, goods. Sporting goods. Liquor. E yes, yes, liquor, of course. Drugs. Well, well just going back to the his boyhood after he dropped out of school, he um, he was an electrician for a while. And um, back in the days when electricity hadn't been hooked up to the whole city yet. So that, so that was interesting. Back then he was a product demonstrator for... Uh, margarine company that went out of business and then he worked for canal bank and trust and he had a great career there as a young man but 
lo and behold, the bank holiday happened in 1933 during the Depression, and he woke up the next Monday and he was out of a job because Canal Bank went out of business. Well, so so he went into this uh, grocery business, the family business, but mm-hmm. but quite differently. Instead of just a few employees, he had as many as two hundred in that big store. Oh yeah, yeah. In his first store, at at yeah, at, he was one of the biggest employers of in New Orleans. So, and one of the differences that he, I I don't know if he came up with this in particular, but the the big stores had instead of just having uh, bargains on Thursday. He thought that every day should have low prices. Yes, yes. He instituted a policy of um, he would advertise on Monday the special bargains throughout the store, which was which were quite extensive, and decided that uh, the whole that he would have those prices for the whole week. And he had a whole rationale for that. But he was one of the first people, if not the first people, to do that. Everyday low prices. Now the one the store that a lot of um, people who are maybe approaching retirement age now remember is the airline highway store, the second store. Yes, that came along in the early fifties, mm-hmm. and this was twice as big. Oh, it was more than twice. It was about about four times as big. It was the biggest store in the world at the time. He built it. It opened in nineteen fifty. But he was tinkering with it for another four years, and then it re- achieved its full size with all sorts of lease departments. It was, it was basically what they call now a hypermarket, which is sells food, drugs, general merchandise, and has services. And I didn't realize um, <clears throat> that these the lease aspect of it. In other words, it wasn't all his employees he leased out space to people like a barber a flower shop a radio tv shop shoes keys things like that and we're used to it now with the super what we call big box stores you know the walmart and Uh big discount stores but that was really novel oh yeah yeah that that was incredibly novel for the time in fact it it didn't people didn't really start making those stores on mass as a general retail phenomenon until the late 80s. Well, and be, before we get to the late 80s, the, the one, the third big giant Schwegmans was on Gentilly Road, and a lot of people remember that one. Yes. Now, was, in the, yeah, now you have the Gentilly store. So you have the first store in St. Claude, which is 16,000. Then you have the second store in Airline, which is 89,000 feet. Then you have the third store, which... On Gentilly, which is 260,000. So it's like three times bigger than his second store. And it, now, that was actually the biggest store ever built, um, as big as the biggest Walmart that has ever been built. Well, part of the reason why <clears throat> it was such a novelty, a lot of p- people, young people don't remember this. I remember the tail end of it was we used to have something called fair trade laws. Yes, fair trade laws is a black hole in retail memory, I think. And very few people remember it. Well, I certainly It was a good didn't. idea. Well, it, it had its positive rationale it, when, it, when it was passed in 1931. You explain that, you know, with the rise of brand names and these manufacturers, 
the small person would be at a disadvantage because these chains were developing. So what they said is they couldn't, these big chains, they couldn't discount things that were advertised under these fair trade laws because then it wouldn't be fair to the small shop owner. So it started out sounding kind of noble. Yes, definitely. And it's um, interesting, the, the liberal types, political liberals, were very much pro-fair trade because it leveled the playing field between everyone, suppo- supposedly. that's what. But John, John Schwegman, he fought these from the very beginning. He wanted to discount his prices, and he, he took it to court. He sp- spent a lot of money. He won a few of the battles, lost a few of the battles. Um, and part of it was on, you know, we can't, we don't have time to go into all the technicalities, right. but part of it was that you were bound by these fair trade laws, even if you didn't sign a contract. And so he, he won a bit on that basis. Right, you know, the right. Technicality, the no signer clause. Yes, yes, ab- absolutely, yes. Uh, you picked up on that point. That's that's the c- crucial point. Was the no signer clause, which which forces you to honor a contract that you did not sign. So you can see that the the actual reasoning, legal reasoning behind the fair trade, even though they were, it was noble impulses, you can see that it was a very shaky foundation. Well, I remember state by state, and when I was a kid, you know, we wanted certain brands, and you paid the same price no matter where you went. But in the 70s, the Consumer Protection Act did away with most of those laws. Yes. It superseded most of them. Yes. Um, but he... He traveled, he made a lot of money on those stores, and of course, if you ask any New Orleanian, what do you think of when you think of John Schwegman and his groceries, they immediately think of the grocery bags. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, those those were the most famous feature. Of, you know. Tell us about the grocery bags. Well, it's, it's, I'm not quite sure when he decided to do it. It was probably, you know, around the time he opened the airline store, but he just started putting out... Well, he was a he was a marketing wizard, a marketer extraordinaire, as I call him. Um, he had a whole philosophy of advertising and promotion that has never really been equaled or followed up on to to any significant degree. Um, he believed in establishing a personal connection with the consumer himself as a friend and a person who spoke directly to his customers, and and the people in the city. And he published um, installments of his uh, describing his trips and so on. And you point out probably his lawyer, Saul Stone, that helped him with some of these uh, fair trade battles might have helped him. Oh, yeah, Saul Stone. Polish up some of that. Yeah, yeah, Saul Stone was quoted as, well, what do you expect? He was a high school dropout. But but now these sacks, these grocery bags... um, they were used for uh, endorsing political candidates. Yes, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So they they were um, so the ads were one thing. They were a phenomenon in, in itself with all the commentary and all this stuff. But the bags were just a unique phenomenon in their own right. Um, he came to that because he wanted to do circulars. He wanted to have kids knocking on doors and give the, giving them the the ads, you know, door to door. And he just couldn't find, he was like, these kids these days don't want to work like that. So he came up with this idea of the bag so people could take the bag home 
and see the Schwagman, you know. And it, but that that wasn't unique in itself because other grocery stores, supermarkets did put their names on the bags. But he started putting personal messages on. So it started out pretty mild, and then it turned into this. As he became more political, the bags became more political, and he started putting endorsements of politicians and endorsements of his own political views. And, and, it's, and there's all these stories like um, so he would be endorsing a anti-union candidate and the union people would come into stores and get really mad to have to have this bag. And he's, he would say, oh, well, here, take this bag. And it would be a plain bag, and, you know, so. Now, in researching this book, did you find, are there collectors around New Orleans who actually kept those bags? Well, I'm finding more and more as I get around, yes, people say, oh, I have some of those bags. They seem very like will-o'-the-wisps, very rare, ephemera. Something you wouldn't think of to ch to save. But yeah, no, no, not at the time. <laughs> 50, 60 years later. But yeah. I would think that they'd be pretty good Maybe on we'll eBay. Maybe we'll see them on eBay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, and he actually got into politics himself. He he wasn't as interested as some people <clears throat> in spreading around the country. He was happy in Louisiana, and and he ran for office, you say, eight times, and he won four elections, mm -hmm. state legislators, state senate, public service commission, which actually he was doing that at the end. Mm -hmm. But he was kind of a feisty politician. Oh, he yeah. He voted no quite a bit on things in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, he was the great naysayer. And one thing he was completely against was the Superdome. Oh, yeah. that That's, well, the whole political chapter in this book and the Superdome chapter in this book, both which come near the end, are really great revelations to, to me personally. I, I had, knew nothing about his political life. And I didn't know anything about his opposition to the Superdome, but it was a huge issue back in the, what, like you say, the late 60s, 60s. and the early 70s. And and we've interviewed the father of the Superdome, who you talk about, um, dear, rest in peace, Dave Dixon. Oh, we've oh interviewed, Dave Dixon, um, yes. Governor Edwards. We've interviewed people who had the opposite view, who fought for the Superdome. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, um... Well, I would say the, the pretty much the New Orleans establishment, political establishment, was totally in favor of the Superdome. As you can understand, is a great boon to the economy in a certain way, and it's a great symbol of the city. So why was John Schwegman against it? Well, he was against it because, well, he he was such an economic character. Just economics just pervaded his soul. So I mean, he, he was right about little he, things like the cost was maybe, what, five times yeah, what they thought it was. Yeah, the cost kept going up. He thought it was an illegitimate process that he thought Governor McKeithen just rammed it through the legislature on false pretenses and and by lowballing the cost estimates and all this stuff, he said, no, this is going to balloon and well, I remember you, you talk about uh, Dave Dixon's book about, and it, his, his title included the scandal. Right. And and I said to him, "What was the scandal?" And his point of view was the scandal that was was because Life Magazine did a story 
on McKithens, some financial dealings, um, then he couldn't become president. <laughs> oh, that was he said that scandal. was the scandal. But oh, okay. Now John Schwegman didn't feel that. No, He's, John John Schwegman created his own scandal. Yeah, he thought that it was not as transparent. The process wasn't as transparent as it could have been. Well, um, well, but that that's putting it mildly. He thought it was a total farce and wanted a new election and wanted to annul. He was pretty, pretty hardcore against it. Well, it sounds like he was just, you know, an amazing kind of person. By the end, um, he had 5,000 employees and there were 18 stores. And most of them were, they were all in Louisiana, right? Yes, And most yes. of them around this area. Yes, yeah, people talk about... Um, and I, I push this too that he was Walmart, well, Sam Walton before Sam Walton. But what's what's really distinguishes John Schwegman from Sam Walton is that he had no impulse to expand beyond the city. Now his son John Francis Schwegman came along and and he did expand outside the city to Baton Rouge and Slidell and Hammond. Um. Yeah, but you point out that the sad ending of the Schwegman's time, um, uh, John Jr., you, you don't call him Jr., you use the middle name. Right. Uh -huh. um, he, he not only took over for his father uh, politically, he went on the Public uh, Service Commission. Yes. And, and he was quite prominent, and his wife was very prominent. Yes. Melinda, uh, John Jr.'s wife was our first female lieutenant governor. She she actually ran for governor. I remember that. Yeah, she ran against Edwin Edwards. You know, I, I don't know why she lost. But. <laughs> Having, I've written several books, including uh, some information about Governor Edwards, who, as we're taping this, just celebrated his 90th oh, birthday yeah. with a great big party. Um, happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday, Governor Edwards, the first <laughs> Governor Edwards. Um, he had a lot of charisma and, uh, yes, uh, so many people I know who really disliked some of his policies and, um, so on voted for him anyway. <laughs> and of course we had to vote for him when it was down to him and David Duke. Yes. And I still have the posters, you know, vote for the crook. It's important. <laughs> but, um, at any rate, John Schwegman Jr., that when he took over, he he made a, a, a move that some people, including his um, relatives, <laughs> thought was a big mistake. You said he wanted to expand. Yes, he, yes, he, yeah, he, um, yeah, just to go finish off that one point, um, you know, basically he, John and his son, John Francis, they did not, as despite John Francis, his son, wanting to expand beyond New Orleans. He didn't really want to expand beyond Louisiana. But um, he died, and his son did it anyway. Yeah, yeah, his son was thinking along those terms, but he never did. But he a uh, 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 consolidation acquisition opportunity came his way, and he took it and bought... Uh, about four, fifty, maybe not quite fifty, but fifty stores from a Canadian chain that were down here, or twenty. I'm not sure. Twenty-eight. Any, I yeah, think twenty. I yeah, twenty-eight. There. Yeah, that, uh, that's right. 
but it expanded his reach to, to, 50. to about 50 stores. And, and this was um, in 99. Uh, well, well, this this was actually in 95. But in it, 99, it led to the collapse. Yeah, it, it took a couple of years for it all to unravel. And his so, relatives so. sued him and won. Um, yes. For what? Yeah, yeah. He, he, millions of dollars. But um, and John Sr. is now in Metairie Cemetery, as are, he had two wives. Um, yes. John <clears throat> Francis's mother and another son who was handicapped, and he spent a lot of money um, supporting handicapped services. And then he had a second wife. And then he had what you call uh, a paramour, some legal places call it concubine. Yes. He had a girlfriend. Right. And it was one of the first palimony suits. Right. But I, she she lost. <laughs> yes. I've I actually talked to people since the book came out and saying, oh, yeah, it was a giant scandal with John Schwegman having a girlfriend out of wedlock or, you know, or not, not having married her. Now, and, today, of course, that, you know, we have all these celebrities that have children and some of them never get married. Right. But um, he was a trendsetter. He was a trendsetter in divorce relations, among other things. Well, he was a businessman. We remember him as a very uh, sharp businessman, as a politician. Um, he was a visionary. Very innovative. Um, the grocery sacks, the discount prices, um, sticking up for the consumer. Uh, maybe he voted against a lot of things but but it wasn't he was just very to well stop respected. progress yeah and people he, admired him yes 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 he had all those different aspects to his character and it's just very amazing person that can combine all those aspects of of life into a single well the book was a lot of fun to read and person. um dominic massa we he, we've had him on. He's written several books, and he's the executive producer of um, WWL TV. Mm -hmm. And he did a review on TV, and it was also published in the Advocate. He said, after reading the People's Grocer, it's hard to imagine John Schwegman as anything other than a supermarket superstar. This book makes a strong case for Schwegman as a retail genius, ahead of and on par. Some would say with Sam Walton of Walmart fame. Uh, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, David Capello. Thank, thank you, Sherry. Thank you for being here. And the book is The People's Grocer, John Schwegman, New Orleans, and the Making of the Modern Retail World. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.